Okay, good morning everyone. We'll jump back into Proverbs chapter 13. A wise son, wise ways to live, part 1, which is chapter 13. We're right in the middle. We left off at verse 12, so we'll pick up there. Let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so just to give a quick way of run-up, we already did commentary on these verses last week. So verses 7 through 11 will run up. If you uh, are looking for a Bible, need a Bible, I think we have some over to the side by the television screen over there. Feel free to grab one if you need one. So at chapter 13, verse 7, one pretends to be rich yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor yet has great wealth. (laughs) So you can see the... The kind of peacocking on the one hand. On the other hand, there's an opportunity here to talk about miserliness that I think I missed last week. But with every every proverb, there's an opportunity to meditate almost endlessly. So the idea of one who has great wealth but pretends to be poor, that can be a virtue, living frugally. It can be a vice, that same thing bent toward a vice, if... Uh, it's done in a miserly way, a greedy, hoarding, uh, disordered kind of way. Okay, eight, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. So we summarize the first half as more money, more problems. As soon as you get the great wealth you really want, you become a target of those who would take it from you. Or kidnap you. And then your great wealth becomes just a ransom. Fantastic. And a poor man is better off because he hears no threat. So we're thinking about, you know, sometimes people set out, especially maybe ambitious young men, my whole goal in life is to make as much money as I can. Careful, that's not the virtuous thing you think it is, nor in this life, unfortunately, does it happen. Okay, nine, the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. We reflected on Jesus' words, if even their light is darkness, then how great is the darkness? Definitely indicative of the world we're perceiving right now in our country, that the lamp of the wicked, the light of the wicked, is indeed profound darkness. What they call good is profound evil. And it will ultimately be put out. Ten, by insolence comes nothing but strife. But with those who take advice is wisdom. So insolence, just a, a, you know, sometimes the wisdom, fake it till you make it, is good. (laughs) And that's not to be mistaken from, or not to be mistaken with or confused with insolence. So the idea of, nope, I'm here, I've arrived uh, sometimes I think this particularly evident in younger people. You know, the high school graduate knows all there is to know. The college graduate almost even worse. So this idea of insolence being puffed up and looking down your nose at everyone else on account of who you are, um, that's going to bring nothing but strife, obviously, because there's going to be people who either just hate you outright or try to knock you down for your own good. So rather than being insolent, be one who takes advice. Listen to your elders. Gray hairs are no, uh, <laughs> are no guarantee of wisdom. Every once in a while you get those lists of like, you know, 10 pieces of advice from octogenarians. And it is the most rotten rubbish you'll ever read. Trust your heart. Believe in yourself. Play, don't work. And just, I mean, just preposterously retarded stuff. So 
Uh, yeah, gray hairs is no guarantee of wisdom, that's for certain. But where God has granted you, Christian people around you with gray hairs, there probably is some wisdom, and all of us want to have the posture of being willing to take advice. Okay, 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle. Easy come, easy go. We reflected on the the devastating statistics in regard to those who uh, come across money very quickly, like winning uh, the lottery or gambling or some such thing. It's those same impulses that caused them to bet in the first place cause them to not manage their money and for it to go away. So whoever gathers little by little will increase it. And I think that that ties into a maybe deeper sub-theme of the Proverbs so far, which is just humility, what's in front of you that God has given you to do. Be grounded in that. Be humble in that. One step at a time, little by little. Patience. Almost the difference between the, the tortoise and the hare. So slow and steady wins the race as opposed to fast with all the problems that come along with that. All right, and that takes us then into the new material at 12. Any questions or anything rattling around, anything obvious I missed that you want to bring up in those verses? There's a hand over here. Are we running a microphone? Thanks. like watching American Ninja for you to get up here. There's kinds of obstacles. He's, he, he's lost a step or two, I think. <laughs> uh, I just want to go back to the uh, wisdom and uh, point out or ask that just uh, knowledge of the Lord is wisdom, and it could happen in any age. Absolutely. Not yeah. at the no, it might happen at gray hair age too, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily happen then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, yeah, that you bring up a great point. So you'll find you'll find Christians where their maturity in the faith is one thing, and their maturity of the body is another. <laughs> so I mean, every once in a while, I'll run across a little kiddo in confirmation class that I'm like, if I had a if I had a congregation of him, I could take over the world. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, there's, uh, sometimes very young people are gifted by God to have great spiritual maturity. And uh, not always the case, not frequently the case, maybe. And then you'll find, uh, you'll find um, some folks with physical maturity, and they have a lack of spiritual maturity. That's a tragic thing. And... So, yeah, those two things are not necessarily, even if they sort of generally correlate, they don't always. That's a great observation. So, and, and a good point, too, to sort of zoom up out of the trees and look at the forest. We, we are centering ourselves on um, the wisdom of God. And it would be good to remember that there's two revelations or books of revelation from God. And one is creation itself, and the other are the Holy Scriptures. Creation itself will teach you many, many things about God. They will not, it will not teach you the gospel. It will not teach you of Christ and his sacraments and what's to come after. The gospel is part of that specific revelation given to us in the Scriptures and in the proclamation of those Scriptures. But one can gain a tremendous amount of godly wisdom by understanding both nature and God's revelation through nature as well as Scripture and God's revelation through Scripture. So that is, uh, to zoom all the way out, we are using a, a specifically Christian frame, which happens to be the frame of objective reality here. And when we're describing wisdom, it's not necessarily things like this trick that'll save you 1% on your taxes. That's not the kind of thing we have in mind here as much as uh, what did the scriptures say? That's one statement. But how does reality work? That's another statement. There are many things that you know to be true, especially if you were to like 
hone in on being a parent or something like that. There's many things that you know to be true, or just reflect on yourself, that you don't have a chapter in verse 4 and you don't need a chapter in verse 4. There's not really a chapter in verse that says, hey, Rhoda, you shouldn't stay up all night drinking whiskey and playing video games. Uh, Well, I'm not getting drunk. Well, it's my freedom in Christ. Can't I do that? At a certain point, you just have to say, well, it's not wise. It's foolish. Even if it's not sinful, it's foolish. And no, I don't need a chapter and verse to tell you you're kind of making a disaster of yourself and of your life by engaging in this kind of thing. Okay, so that'd be one concrete example. And as parents, we all have that refrain when we tell our kids to do something, direct them in the way of wisdom, and they say, but why? And you say, because I said so. <laughs> that's enough. That's, a, that's effectively saying, I don't have a chapter and verse, or I don't care to bring it to bear. I know what I know, and because I'm in a position of authority, I can say this to you, and you have to obey it. And it's wisdom for you to obey it. Yeah, please. Yeah, wisdom is definitely not honored in today's society. Right. If somebody has all the information they need, they look at wisdom as being non-essential. You know? When I grew up, the axiom was, the more you know, the more you need to know. You know that you need to learn or know. Mm -hmm. But anymore, um, it just seems that wisdom is, is becoming almost dishonored. Yeah. Yeah. Every man for himself. Yeah, learning itself, the act of learning itself brings with it a kind of humiliation. And I mean that in a technical sense. I don't mean that in the sense of like being embarrassed or shamed or something. But in the sense of, you, as you put it, uh, the more you learn, the more you realize you need to continue learning. You don't know all there is. So we live in a culture that doesn't appreciate learning It appreciates just having information. Why would I ever learn that? I can just Google it. I'm seeing educators, parents, and grandparents shaking their head. Yes, so this is a common observation. So there is a distinction, quite a distinction, between having access to information and learning. And there's a a tie-in here with what you stated originally, that wisdom is something different Because one can be exceedingly wise, but be privy to maybe a very limited set of information. So this was was often used by my father as I was growing up. And, you know, sometimes you 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 say haughty things when you're a young man and, you know, arrogant things because you don't have your bearings. And one of the things that he would always say or frequently bring up would be, the farmer out in the potato fields of southern Idaho who didn't graduate high school, who wasn't privileged to have a college degree, but who was amongst the wisest that my dad had encountered. Uh, He served out there for eight years as a pastor precisely because he viewed his vocation as a farmer as, as completely and intimately connected with God and indistinguishable from it. These, I, I plant, I water, but whether or not that crop comes in is God. And that's his business. And when you live your life that way, with your eyes wide open to that reality, all of a sudden it, you don't see this artificial bifurcation. Well, this is church and this is life, or this is right-hand kingdom and this is left-hand kingdom. You see the whole of creation and your part in it and the whole of your life is religious. Then, So you may not have a lot of quote-unquote book learning, but a guy like that has a ton of wisdom that you might find countless people, especially in and around the cities, who have all the book learning in the world, but not a drop of wisdom, not a drop of perception into objective reality. So those are things to keep in mind, you know, and thank you for your comment. Keep these things in mind as we... So yeah, even in uh, 1 Corinthians, like if you did want kind of a proof text on all of this, Paul says, not many of you wise. 
that is, not many who are called by God to be Christians, are, have the world's wisdom or have academic credentials. Now, by God's grace, he does grant us those, but not many. Amongst, uh, or I should say, the majority of Christians who are called by God to faith in Christ tend to be among what the world would call foolish. And Paul has a specific point that God has chosen the foolish to put to shame those things that are wise. That's truly embodied in human beings and in the sum total of the church. It's embodied even in a man like St. Paul who's completely, I mean, he's got an incredible education. He's ex- uh, extremely intelligent. He's got anything you'd want to have in the first century. But then when he goes to the churches, especially in the early stages, he'll say, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. You're not ready for the additional wisdom that I have to impart yet. He'll say that you know, you're ready for milk, not solid food. And similar kinds of expressions. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 would be a very good, if you want a fuller biblical understanding of this sort of paradox of why is it that Christians in this age are frequently amongst the foolish. It's so that God, through what is foolish, overcomes that which is wise. I should be using scare quotes for these, but that's the idea. Please. So is wisdom a gift or is something that you can get or or how you can get it? Yeah, great question. So it depends on what kind of wisdom you're talking about. Um, The wisdom of, for example, if we were to equate the receipt of wisdom with faith in Jesus Christ, well, that's obviously a gift. And so there's going to be aspects of wisdom that we would certainly say are a gift and a miracle that God is working within us. There are other aspects of Christian wisdom where cooperation with the Holy Spirit is rewarded. So that's, you can see the difference. Well, I'll, I'll just put it this way so nobody feels embarrassed. You can see the difference in pastors uh, over time, those pastors that remain in God's word and those pastors that continue to read and think deeply about theology versus those who haven't picked up a book, probably including the Bible, since they graduated seminary. You tell a vast difference. Well, who's that on? Is that on God that he didn't give them the gift? No, that's on them for being poor stewards and not cooperating with the Holy Spirit in his teaching, ongoing teaching of wisdom. So good question. I think we can make a division there. Some is, I mean, in the, in the broadest sense, you'd say it's all gift. Because even the Holy Spirit uh, given and those deeds that were given to cooperate with him in. And this is the language of the formula of Concord, by the way. Um, all of that's gift too. So it's all gift, but there's gift in a sense that requires none of our effort. And there's gift in the sense that does require our effort. Is there a way for us to know that if we have or don't have the wisdom? How uh, do we know that we have wisdom? Sure. So that's a good question. I think, I think the key is that you study the, as you study the scriptures, first and foremost, I, I think this would be the easiest way to put it, and you reflect on your knowledge of the scriptures and the wisdom it presents, you'll simultaneously realize that you, by God's grace, have been given a certain amount of God's wisdom, and may he increase that. But you'll also, per Alice's comment, I mean, with that baked in comes humility. Because as you study God's word, there's almost nothing more humbling. You are constantly realizing how little you know. I can't tell you, it's just such a frequent occurrence that as I'm studying the scriptures, I come across just some little simple thing. And I'm like, I have no clue. And if somebody asked that, I'd be utterly embarrassed. 
And it's not like, what was the capital of ancient Babylon? That's not what I'm talking about. But like, I'll give you an example of, of one that kind of hit me earlier this year. So I, I won't go, we won't digress, but where is Satan and where can he go? <laughs> so where, where is Satan, where can he go? Um, that kind of idea. That's a, it's actually just a really simple question, and God be praised, none of you have asked me that. Because, <laughs> because it's really hard. It's really a hard question, and it really ties in a bunch of scriptures that are difficult scriptures of, of which we uh, maybe don't have the clearest view. So as a pastor, I'm constantly encountering things like this where it's just like, oh my goodness, how could this be? <laughs> Yeah, so I think I think as Christians we walk we walk humbly with the Lord. We don't want to ever discredit that it is His wisdom that He has given to us. That's where humility can go astray. If we say, "Oh, I'm just an idiot," no, you're not. You're a man made after the image of Christ, and He has gifted you with a certain amount of wisdom. You're not an idiot or a fool in any absolute sense. So don't don't do the false humility thing. That's a spiritual poison and an error. Um, but the flip side is obviously don't become puffed up and arrogant and haughty. And it's frequently, not always the case, that if you find yourself getting all like flustered when you're having a, a theological or spiritual or profoundly meaningful conversation with someone, if you find yourself getting prematurely flustered or irritated, it's frequently not always a sign that you don't understand it as well as you think you do. It's usually a sign of some inner insecurity. So that's, that's kind of another general thing to keep in your mind. Um, once you know a thing well, then you have the confidence to discuss it without becoming heated, unless being heated is the right thing. And then you can choose that rather than have it impulsively be a part of the conversation. Great questions. My goodness. Fantastic questions. Thank you all. Anything else we want to touch on? Or are we ready to go into the new material? Yeah? Okay. All right. So, on to verse 12, which is kind of a difficult one. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Now, I think that this has and we can acknowledge it, just a general sort of sense that if someone's constantly promising something to you and then never delivering it, that doesn't make you feel great. <laughs> okay. And then uh, that's the sense of a hope deferred, whereas finally receiving something is joy and a, and a kind of tree of life. Now, I think the tree of life tips us off to something greater. We've seen tree of life language used in a way that we reflect on the Messiah, on Christ, as our tree of life, and the way he reflects on us as one body with him to be trees of life ourselves. I think maybe the way that I would apply this to our frame today is part of what's going on with a hope deferred is if you look at progressivism, which has at least in some sense its basis in evolution, and evolutionary thinking, namely that it's always getting better, that biology itself is always progressing. And so we socially need to, fo- need to believe that as our frame and follow that and always be progressing. The problem is you're never happy because it, there's this injustice we have to write. Well, we righted it in great big air quotes. Well, we righted it. So did we make it? Are we happy? Nope. On to the next one. On to the next. And what you'll find is they're never ending. They're never ending. And most of them don't get fulfilled anyway. They get forgotten. We've got to save the trees. We've got to save the fossil fuels. We've got to save the whales. We've got to save the polar bears. All our hairspray in the 80s was ruining the ozone layer. <laughs> 
and on and on and on the lies go. These things that we've got to like, these problems that we've got to solve, and the, these, this progress that we've got to make. And you can see the social destruction. I mean, especially when your progress is, objectively speaking, upside down. It's like we've got to dig down to one more layer of hell, don't we? And there's something about that ethos of it's got to constantly get better that makes the heart sick. There's never anything to enjoy. There's never any fulfillment. There's never any sense of, we've arrived. There's never any contentment. And you remember, as the scriptures say, godliness with contentment is great gain. So I think then the idea here would be juxtaposed with the world's constant sense of, well, we need this, and we need this, and we need this. Hope is always deferred, and we're always, as a people, sick of heart. The Christian church says, no, the entire structure is set up differently. Every single Sunday, the tree of life is set before you, and every single Sunday, your ultimate desires are fulfilled. Now, what that does is that contextualizes. So you want to make progress, great. But is that progress ultimate? No. It's extremely penultimate or secondary. What's ultimate and primary is that Christ has finished it. That he is our tree of life. That he comes every single Sunday to give us that climax and that closure. So that even if our hopes aren't completely fulfilled yet... Our central hope is shown forth in the cross of Christ and in the sacraments of Christ as being fulfilled. Now, that has a now and not yet sense as well, doesn't it? Because we all long for the new heavens and the new earth. We all long for Christ to return. And good and fine, wonderful. But there is something, and I don't know if I'm articulating it the best, but there is something within Christianity that's entirely inimical to progress, trademark. Where we're constantly, constantly, constantly moving and never happy. Christianity says, here's the fulfillment. Here's your heart's desire. Here's everything you can have this side of the end of the age. And it's given to you regularly. I think what that does is that contextualizes all those things we want to have happen and says, those are as important as they may be, they're secondary. And that produces a heart that is not sick, but a heart that is revived by the tree of life. So desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And I think that that's, so I think the deeper sense of what Solomon's getting at, and I know I've really contextualized it in in our own time and place here, but the sense is that where are we going to have the good and ultimate desires in our hearts fulfilled? if not in God. And if we try to get those things fulfilled in the creature rather than in the creator, we're going to find it never fulfilled, but hope always deferred, and we're going to end up heartsick, unhealthy of heart. All right, let me pause there. That's a challenging one, I think, just even in terms of the language and grammar. Any thoughts? Everybody Okay. Well, you closed the circle on me because that's the verse I was struggling with all last week. Godliness with contentment is great gain, mm-hmm. but and having the promise that is... Now, here I am again in this 80-plus year life. I'm trying to put it together again. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Having the promise that is not yet... But that which is to come, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Is that how you say it? Yeah, is that I think what that's scripture great. says? Mm-hmm. I think that's great, yeah. Yeah, and I, we can reflect, I mean, on Hebrews, where he goes through the, the hall of saints, and the refrain is, these died having not received the promise. So to be sure, there is this biblical theme, and a major theme, that is to say, 
anything fulfilled in this life is nothing compared to what is to come and the full fulfillment of God's promises. Okay? Now, that's absolutely categorically true, but I don't think it mitigates against the sense that I'm trying to bring out uh, that I think is objectively there. And that is that along the way, that Christianity is inimical to this idea that you've got to constantly progress. You've got to constantly be changing yourself and changing society and changing everything. I mean, even as we wage war against our flesh, and even as we fight and try to make progress, on Sunday you come, and whether you've won or lost, whether you've gained ground or lost ground, you stand before the table of the Lord and receive his body and blood for the full and free forgiveness of your sins. So it contextualizes that progress, doesn't it? Otherwise, your heart gets sick as a Christian. Maybe that's what a lot of evangelicalism is, where it's just like, hey, how are you progressing? Are you doing better? And there's never any sense of, here you are at the tree of life, receiving from the cross that, which ha- that fruit which hangs from it, Christ's body and blood. Be satisfied. Be content. So maybe that's what's being described when, when some people who have come out of American evangelicalism talk about it like a constant treadmill. Like there's, a, there's sort of a carrot and a stick, and you're just running and running and running and running and trying to do more and more, and you think if you learn more, if you do more, you'll finally arrive, but you never arrive, and ultimately that creates a sickness of heart. I suppose we all have to be weary about that as Christians, no matter what denomination we're in. Yes, indeed, we want to strive against the flesh and strive to make progress in our Christian life and our maturity. But baked into Christianity is every single week, bare minimum, it is finished. Don't forget, your Sabbath, your rest is rest in Christ and his accomplished work. And he is filling you with that thing that, if you're honest and wise, is indeed your deepest desire. Peace with God, reconciliation with your creator and with the one who is your future. Okay, so just for the sake of moving on, lest we uh, run out of time having done one verse. 13. (laughs) Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. Now, what word is this? Obviously, Christ and God's word, all of the above, the entire revelation of God. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. I mean, it's true even in a minor sense. You can be a Christian but despise this or that word. All you're going to do is bring destruction upon yourself. So don't do it. But he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. So again, to revere the commandment. I I don't know, for so long in American Lutheranism, this has struck people as a legalistic way of thinking. But I encourage you as the as the months and years and maybe even decades drag on and you see what the world holds up as an alternative to God's commandment and God's law, all of a sudden a whole set of Bible verses that praise the law and delight in the law and glory in the law will become so obvious to you in a way maybe they haven't previously come to you your entire life. Because you're going to look at paganism and you're going to go, look at the morality that is, exists underneath the rainbow flag. As pure Satanism. Look at the commandments of the, of the rainbow flag. As pure disgust. Set, juxtapose those with the, with the commandments of God. Oh, how I love your law. Teach me your precepts. Let me know your statutes. Well, I'll be praying Psalm 119 every day. <laughs> so this is a lot of what's missing. It's not legalism. It's consider the alternative. And the alternative is some satanic commandment or another. So to revere the commandment of God uh, is a reward in itself, but it also brings temporal and eternal rewards, as Luther says plainly in the large catechism. All right, 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. And there again, you see how wisdom is really in a theological and Christian sense that that uh, wisdom given is a fount of life that refreshes and renews and gives eternal life within, that spiritual life within. That one may turn away from the snares of death, right? So that life is given. 
Here we see the snares of death, you know, an interesting glimpse too and something we have to reflect on that death isn't just that thing that happens to you when your mind and body get split. So death is all the way back in Genesis and the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we don't see Adam and Eve fall down as corpses that very day. What do we see? They're instantly spiritually dead. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. The body then follows by being split in half, and the soul then, uh, I mean the whole person, split in half, the body into the ground, and the soul into shale, and that's everlasting death. So those, two, those three points of death. And so just in seeing dead in trespasses, we can see that there's a, a death and manifestations of death before you're put into the grave. And that's, I think, beautifully stated here, the snares of death. So we want to receive wisdom. It's a fountain of life. It gives us life. And that life manifests in such a way that we turn away from the snares of death. Those things that lead us into, I think here, spiritual death, even though that might be a little bit of overstating the distinction. Okay, 15. Good sense wins favor. Generally true. True in the church. True even even in regard to God. There there are uh, many Proverbs we've come across, several immediately in this context that talk about God being delighted by our conduct delighted by our thinking, as long as it's good. And so here, I think, is the same thing. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. Sometimes those are articles of faith, because if you just go by your sight, I don't know. In our day and age, when you're looking at social media or media, does good sense win favor? Seems like good sense gets you put in prison or deplatformed, whereas the way of the treacherous seems to be the way to get to the White House or some other position of power. So that's what I mean by this. This proverb can strike you as an article of faith. That is something not perceived with the eyes, but something to be believed. And if you zoom out on history, can just treat our times as no different than any other age gone by, you'll see that this is exactly right. Good sense wins favor. God guarantees it, even if not temporal, then eternal. And likewise, the way of the treacherous leads to their ruin, if not temporal, then eternal. Okay, in everything the prudent acts with knowledge but a fool flaunts his folly. This harkens back to 10, the idea of the insolence. So again, biblical wisdom has baked within it humility. Not self-denigration, but just rightly ordered humility. And foolishness has baked within it this idea of I know more and am more than I actually am. And so there's all this flaunting and bombast and boasting. And it's really flaunting and bombast and boasting in one's foolishness or folly. So I know there might be some that's good out there, but by and large, the entire genre of rap music is like an ode to this proverb. The fool flaunting his folly. I mean, it's pretty much all about sex, drugs, and violence. That's it. And how I'm cooler than this guy and will murder him if he tries to be cooler than me. Great. So the fool flaunts his folly. You can see a lot of that with the death culture, too. Um, The idea of uh, all the skulls and crossbones and that whole kind of cult and cultus. Uh, People will tattoo themselves and wear shirts and put it on their vehicles and whatever else. And this is all the, the foolishness of the greatest power I perceive is the power of death. 
So I'm going to worship and celebrate in some way, try to be a fan of, I mean, just like a Rams fan wears his Rams jersey because he's a fan of the Rams. I'm going to wear my skull and crossbone because I'm a fan of death, right? My team's going to (laughs) win. So you can see that even in a culture of death, the flaunting of a fool is nothing but the flaunting of his folly. And again, as Christians, we can scoff at all of these things because Christ has overcome death. Christ has overcome this greatest power. All right, well, I think that's clear enough. On to 17. Good. All right, a wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Yeah, I mean, this one invites a lot of meditation, especially in terms of the pastoral office in the New Testament, the prophetic office, maybe in a non-technical sense, in the Old Testament. I think the sense here is like, you have a message. If you pervert that message, you're going to land in trouble. If you have a message and you're faithful to that message that message is going to be received. That's going to bring healing in one way, shape, or form, even if that's a painful message you have to deliver. So be faithful in the task you've been given to do would be a generalization. One leads you into trouble, unfaithfulness, wickedness. The other leads you into uh, being a healer, Righteousness, faithfulness. Okay, maybe that's enough. I don't know. That one seems straightforward enough unless we start digging around. So 18, poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. Oh, man. This is like, I'll probably be cutting against the grain here, but what else is new? Uh, so, So a lot of... So generic Christianity is this. If you see a homeless person, you should immediately pity them. Is that right? Now, I think in our country, we have tons of mentally ill people. In fact, you can kind of correlate like where we got rid of mental institutions and uh, psychological hospitals with homelessness and crime, and you can positively correlate these things. It's astonishing. So, yeah, maybe the, maybe the fix is we need to care for mental illness. So I'm not trying to be insensitive. But the idea that everybody on the street is just like you or me, but they fell on hard times and the world was against them and there was nothing they could do and they landed there? Yeah, you should rethink that. We should all rethink that. <laughs> We want, to be, we want to have pity for the poor, and the poor we will always have with us, but we need to realize that some choose that, and some choose that perpetually, and some refuse help, and maybe even most of them. One who ignores instruction, one who ignores help, one who ignores advice, one who ignores what others will give. And I really do still believe that, again, if you want to get on your feet in this country, you can. There's every opportunity to. But if you ignore all of this, then poverty and disgrace befall you. Sometimes you'll see, uh, oh yeah, do you have the mic already? Okay, please, yeah. I, I just had a question about the homeless thing because I struggle with this because I agree with you on everything you just said. Yeah. But then when I look at the Bible and they talk about you know giving alms and you know beggars at the uh, yeah. the gates, I'm like, well, is this the same or different or a little bit of both or who knows? So I, yeah. it's a struggle. Yeah, it is. It is. But I and that's and I agree with you. I think I think um, I don't mean to do anything other than say, hey, there's two sides of the coin. And I think one side, the side of just pity, has been way overplayed. There's the other side of the coin, which is there's culpability there as well. And I mean, I think of, so obviously in the news, and I'll try not to say anything too inflammatory, is this guy with, he's, a fel- he, he's deceased, he's a felon. He tried to kill some lady. He tried to kidnap some kid. Uh, he's... He's homeless, and then, he try, and then he's saying murderous threats on a subway. 
and a Marine stops him, and it ends up ending his life. Am I supposed to have any compassion or any pity on this guy? I, I, I find it, I find, like, I'm sure there's some mental illness there. I can have pity and compassion in that regard, but the man is culpable for what he's done time and time again, and the system is culpable for allowing him out. Now, that same system has taken this guy, a, a former Marine, and put him on, and arrested him and put him on trial for, I think, second-degree manslaughter. It's an utter perversion of justice. And I think Christians were very naive if we just, oh, we're the pity people, we pity everyone, we have mercy on everyone. No, you have to stay, part of Christianity, an essential part of Christianity, is being able to say, this is right and this is wrong. This is just and this is unjust. This is a man who uh, had countless chances, countless opportunities, and he was restrained in the very act of making threats for physical violence, Pardon me, I don't have any compassion for him. So that's, um, you know, you can disagree with me, of course, and that's fine. Um, but I think that that's a, that's a kind of application of this idea that at the heart of, of many, many in our country who are in poverty and disgrace, who are living on the streets and destroying our cities, are people who have ignored instruction, not once, but countless times. The law has come and convicted them, not once, but in the case I'm referencing, 40 times. 40 times you had an opportunity, a formal opportunity to receive instruction, and you didn't. I think that's the kind of thing the proverb is talking about. Did you notice how the family in this particular instance showed up to try to catch a, cash in a paycheck over this whole thing? Where were they before? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So a lot of families wash their hands and say there's nothing they can do. But I, we had a thing with um, Bound, Homeward Bound, where they put them on buses and sent them back home. Mm-hmm. And we were donating to that. Yeah. It seems like the family has to be called. Yeah. Well, I, I would agree. I, I, think, I think what I would pull out and say, I, I mean, I think I agree with you. There's, a, there's at least a certain level of culpability there that we cannot, as Christians, mistake pity or mercy or grace as the perversion of justice. And that's a very common confusion in our thinking, and, and it's a problem in, the, in Western Christendom. We cannot mistake perversion of justice as grace. That's not what grace is. Even the grace we have in Christ Jesus is the precise fulfillment of justice. Christ is on the cross paying for each and every one of our sins. That's the fulfillment of justice, which is equal then to grace. So when you hear this idea of grace being contrary to justice, you're not really hearing the gospel as it is. You're not really distinguishing between law and gospel. And the repercussions in terms of your, your overarching theology, your theology and life and the circumstances of life are going to cause you as a Christian to see things in a very twisted and perverted way. Okay, so anyway, suffice that to say, I think we've... Uh, yeah, I've definitely, definitely given you a <laughs> specific example, and you can disagree with me. You're free on that um, of this uh, of how this, yes, of how this applies. Please. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Um, I do have you know equivocation on whether somebody asking for money. I, you know, deliberate in my mind and decide one way or the other. Yeah. But I had I have to. Def- Defining moments. Once I read an article about people who beg, and they can make over a hundred thousand dollars a year oh, just yeah. begging. Oh yeah, a lot more than I ever made. Yeah. And the other experience I had was once at a teachers' union. My mother was going to uh, get some business done, and in the parking lot there was a man. Uh, soliciting money, and he said, I ran out of gas, and I have to get to Yosemite, and could you help me pay for the gas? I may have given him some money. I don't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. 
But that very evening, I went to a school play. And he was there, and he approached me again. I said, you already asked me for money. <laughs> he was all over town asking for money. Yeah. And he still didn't get to Yosemite. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, as churches, we get abused by this all the time. and call, I mean, in all the people I've helped in my years of ministry, not a single one do I believe has been legit. There's a, cer- there's a certain amount of stewardship. If you just know you're throwing your money away, it's not worth it. There's a certain amount of stewardship. What that is, you have to determine. The other way, though, we give alms to the poor is the same way we give offerings to the church. You have to, you have, to have this kind of beautiful Christian naivete of this is an offering unto God. I'm, I'm giving into the offering plate, not because I'm absolutely certain that this congregation or the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is going to spend every dollar in exactly the way they should. And nor am, I, nor am I tasked with overseeing that. In fact, that will ruin offerings. <laughs> so give your offering naively as if unto God. Give your alms when you determine it's the right thing to do. Give your alms uh, as an offering to God. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about, you know. And I think we'll run into that in the Proverbs. We'll, we'll have opportunity to talk more about this uh, in a proverb coming up. Okay, so let's try to punch out um, one more if we can here. I think we've got a couple minutes left. Okay, so poverty and disgrace at verse 18 come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. So again, this idea of heeding reproof. And that also has to do with the fact that we're not individuals and we're not independent from one another. I mean, individuals in the sense as if we have our own autonomy. We're all interconnected. We all belong to families. We all belong to societies. And we're all collectively accountable to one another. And if you see a young man or a young woman who, whether they've made a misstep or not, is open to and listens to instruction and correction, you honor that person and you give them responsibilities and you give them privilege. If you find somebody who is utterly incapable of this and everything is always somebody else's fault, you go, I don't know if I can trust this person. I love them. I'm not going to kick them out, but I don't know if I can honor them with privilege and responsibilities. So this idea that we're all accountable to each other and we all have to listen to each other is an important thing. And of course, that's, I mean, pastor and people, uh, father and children. It's just thoroughgoing. Teachers and their students, it's thoroughgoing. All right, 19 will be a good place to just call it a day. A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. So now this has its tie-in back where we started at 12. A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. So again, a desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. So to pursue that which is desirous and good, to have that fulfilled in God and by God, is sweetness to the soul. It's a joy and a delight. Uh, To turn away from evil. Just stop being so evil. That's an abomination. I kind of love this. I may be overplaying it. But it's not even do good. It's just stop being evil. (laughs) That's an abomination to fools. So the more, the more evil I can do, the better. The more I can serve myself, the better. There's the incarvatus and in say, the self turned in on itself of the fool, of the wicked. So the Christian avoids this, recognizes when he falls into it, repents, and seeks those things that God gives as the summum bonum, the greatest good. All right, that's it. The Lord be with you. <laughs>